The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Messia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger, subscribe to one of our newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. And if you like this podcast, feel free to share it with a friend or give it a review or subscribe to it or follow it. We would appreciate it. Our guest today is Oscar Wong, the founder of Highland Brewing of Asheville, who has become known as the godfather of craft beer. He started Highland in 1994 as a post-retirement hobby. It was Asheville's first craft brewery since Prohibition, and I don't think we need to state how big of an industry that's become in North Carolina here in Charlotte and, and throughout the state and the southeast and around the country. And we're going to talk to Oscar a little bit about his personal history and his role in the craft beer industry in North Carolina. Oscar received the Brewers Association Recognition Award a, a couple of years back, a big industry honor. And more recently, in May, May of 2023, he was a recipient of the Order of the Longleaf Pine, which is North Carolina's highest civilian honor, awarded by the governor to citizens who provide extraordinary service to the state. Oscar, welcome. Thank you, Tony. Good to be here. I'm really interested in your story. It seems like a very interesting and compelling story and quite a life you've had. I know, and then of course, obviously we want to talk about, you know, the the beer industry and the craft beer industry and your your role in that. Now, I've read you're the son of Chinese immigrants and you were born and raised in Jamaica. How did your parents from China make it to Jamaica and what was that like? Well, back in the 20s and 30s, they left China like so many others trying to make a life. And because they went through Hong Kong, which is British, the people I come from ended up in five distinct locations. And they're all British. In Singapore, Uganda, West Indies, Vancouver, and England. And I have to be connected with it. The little string that ended up in the Caribbean. So I ended up being an island boy. And my life kind of shows that. Were there very many Chinese immigrants in Jamaica at that time? Not many. We constituted, I would say, about 0.7% of the population at the time. But we were rather successful because I guess we were entrepreneurial. You know, doing yeah, what did your family do there? They had a, a grocery store? A small grocery store. You know, only about 10 by 20. Fed five of us kids. Wow. We lived upstairs in a single bedroom. The kids went up first, and then when they closed up shop, the parents came up. And eventually, we bought the houses on either side of us for the expanding needs of the family as we grew. So pretty simple, humble beginnings. And, and actually, uh, I was pretty tight to get to college, and I, I was fortunate. I got to Notre Dame, and my dad told me at the time he had enough money to get the first year and a half through halfway through sophomore year. And then he had an assist uh, annuity that he would cash out, would take me to the end of the junior year. And in three years, he could save up enough for my senior year. That's how tight it was. Wow. And so then, I'm sorry. So you, you went to Notre Dame, you were studying engineering, I think. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And you were, were you, you were the first one in your family to go to college, right? Yes. Yes. And what, what was fact, it? Why did you want to go to college? What was it you wanted to do? What, what was your thinking? on? Well, it was more my dad who 
encouraged me to go to college because I had a small scholarship in high school. And uh, he thought, yeah, well, you know, let me, let me turn around and tell you about what my mother thought. Says, you know, when I was about 11, she said, son, you're fairly bright. You're very lazy. But by God, you're lucky. Well, my dad, on the other hand, said, he just featured on the, he's a fairly bright kid, so you need to go to college, despite the fact that he was barely able to afford it. So that's how we got started. Well, that's great. I mean, he was able to make that, that sacrifice. I'm sure that, that I'm guessing, changed the, the course of your life, it sounds like. Totally. Totally. So you graduated from Notre Dame. Your parents scrimped and saved to, to get you through Notre Dame. And, and then what happened? One of my prouder moments was to write to my dad and said, I'm going out to my master's in structural engineering and you don't have to send another penny. You're off the dole. And I was, I was pretty proud of that. And after I finished my master's, I got my first job in Boston. And that's where I met my wife of now 55 plus years. I actually thought I could move on and go to San Francisco, which I did, but figured out that, yeah, and she really is the one when was this? You met your wife what year? In 66. Okay. And in how did Boston. you two meet? How did you meet your wife? Well, we were both active in the Catholic Church downtown. There's a, what they call a, an outreach parish. And in practical terms, my roommates went to this church service on a Saturday, I think, and then picked up these girls, among them my wife, future wife. And, and, and I had been out with a army buddy looking at fall footage came back and we had a party <laughs> well all right and the rest is history right yeah <laughs> okay so you're you're an engineer you were working in various cities across the country it, it sounded like at some point you wound up in charlotte how did that happen at one point we had our head office was in new jersey and i had some small offices in charlotte houston Richland and Cambridge, Massachusetts, all engineering related. One by one, they were closed because they stopped building new power plants. And that was my specialty. So it's some, some sort of it's nuclear waste processing? Is that, that what the that company came, That came later. Oh, I'm sorry. Because okay. my specialty is structural analysis. And we were work on the nuclear plants to try to figure out how to make sure it's safe under accident conditions. Well, when they stopped building plants, we figured, okay, the next problem is going to be the waste. So we invested in our task force engineers down in Charlotte. And that became the surviving entity of this nuclear company. And what was the and company so called? ATI, Associated Technologies Incorporated, ATI. We were headquartered on Trade Street. No, Triumph, on Triumph. Right. Uptown, we were, near, near the center of Uptown, it yeah. sounds like. It's a commerce building. It's, it's kind of an old, fancy building. But we were on the third floor. We took the third floor, and we were there from... And we moved down in 85, and the business was sold in 87 to U.S. Ecology. So, so you were just here in Charlotte for a few years, just a couple of years? Well, actually, we moved down in 85 and moved up to Ashland in 94. Okay. So in your time in Charlotte, where did you live in Charlotte? What did you find? You'd lived a lot of places. What did, how did Charlotte stack up? It was wonderful. The timing was good. We lived on off of Robbins Road, 
It's called um, Tuckaway Park behind the Charlotte Country Club. We weren't members of the club. We couldn't afford that. But, but we were in a little area that would be surrounded by the golf course. So we lived a pretty good life there. It's South Charlotte, right? I guess. South Charlotte, yeah, correct. Okay. And so at, at that time in Charlotte in the late 80s, you know, a lot of attention was being given to Charlotte's growing banks. You know, you had Hugh McCall, yeah. you know, with at, at the time with Nations Bank and you had Ed Crutchfield. And I think at the time was First Union. They were building a big, it was known as a banking city, but obviously had a diversified economy. You know, a bunch of different types of companies. You're in an engineering firm. You know, was it a, what was Charlotte like at the time? It grew rather quickly in those days because these banking titans were at it. You know, you would call it a quadrille trying to outshine each other. And I remember, yeah, NCNB, then Nations Bank, then Bank of America, you know, it's sort of a progression. And I was rather proud of the fact that Charlotte became the number two financial capital of the country behind New York. People... I don't think people were aware of it. It wasn't Chicago or San Francisco or L.A. or Miami. Charlotte, it's amazing. It was growing a little bit faster than uh, we were comfortable with. We, we loved living there. It was great. We met a lot of great people. And we wanted something slower. So in 92, we bought this place up in Asheville with an eye towards eventual retirement up here. So this, at, at what point was the engineering company sold? Was that the early 90s? No, actually it was sold in 87 and they kept me on for three years. Then they moved the operation to California and they didn't have any room for old 50-year-old washed up engineer. 50 doesn't sound that there. old. As someone who turned 50 last year, I've got to tell you, I don't think 50 is that old. I think you still have, <laughs> obviously you still had a lot left in you. No, I didn't. I didn't feel that at all either. <laughs> <laughs> so you stayed in Charlotte till the early '90s. You bought a place up in Asheville. How did you get into the beer industry? Because that seems like it's very different than engineering. Well, it's only similar to engineering in the fact that you do need technical operations from a building point of view to make things work, both in civil. Structural, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, they all come together to make a brewing operation that's really effective. My partner at the time, I was introduced to an award winning brewer, John McDermott, who got a silver award in the Great American Beer Festival for his Albemarle Ale. So, this fellow who was our mutual friend, he was the head of the marketing department for our company, the engineering company. And I had since sold out. I was casted around, and he came to me and said, here's the situation. John can use somebody with some financial backing, some business experience, and some experience with regulatory folks. And, and you were the guy. You, you got it all covered. As he told John, he says, Oscar's at home. He's sitting on his butt and doing nothing. So... Well, well, what did you, the most, maybe the important question is, what did your wife think when you said, hey, I'm going to go start a, a beer company? What was your wife's reaction? Oh, that's, that's easy. She, she was quite happy with that because I had been home for, well, at that point, four years. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> so, can see that. So she's like, you know, okay, it's going to give you something to do as opposed to puttering around the house and right, complaining yeah. or whatever. It's giving you a new, a new project to work on. Yep. I have to give her credit. And from the very beginning, when I sold the business and I was cast adrift, she suggested to take a break 
and I go find something right away. I have to give her credit for that. And so when you moved up to Asheville, you know, a lot of people retire up to Asheville. What, what was Asheville like in the early 90s? It was an up-and-coming mountain town that actually in time it passed by a little bit. And um, there were things like people making a break downtown with the art museum, the restaurant, one or two here and there. Some brave souls. And then it was John Cram with his art. He came from Indiana. So th there was a little sprinkling of uh, entrepreneurial activity picking up after a pretty long, slow decline. We got here and there's barley's open up and we thought we'd doing with them and we, we, we had some business and the timing was good. Now, he went in a sense that we're the first legal one around. Yeah, so I mean, I, what was that like? I mean, so you're, you're starting up, and I think it's also, Oscar, important to point out that in the early 1990s, it's not like it was now. I mean, I, beer, as I recall it, in the early 1990s, you didn't have a whole lot of choices. It was, you know, it was Bud Light, Miller Light. I remember I graduated from college in 1994, and the campus bar, the choices were Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors, and they had something called Natty Bow. Natural Bohemian, I think it was like $1.50. It was not what we would consider to be great beer. And that, those are basically your choices. I mean, there were also imports. You might remember the right. ads at the time, Amstel Light or Heineken or Lowenbrow, something yeah. like that. There weren't a whole lot of choices. And people, at least this is my perception, people who were brewing beer, they were kind of, it was almost a little odd, right? They would do it in their garage. <laughs> it wasn't very good, typically. Am I remembering that correctly? You are absolutely right on. That is, it was a struggle in the beginning because a lot of people really didn't got into the business and really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So what was your interest in beer? Had you always been interested in beer? Actually, yes. I've always enjoyed beer. In fact, for those four years that before between selling the business and being cast adrift and starting this, we had beer dinners at home. I used to host beer dinners. It was a pretty fun thing to do. So what would you drink? What kind of beer would you have? Well, the way, actually, at the time, it was a course, banquet, some European, you know, like uh, Heineken, Lauren Brown, the usual, the one you mentioned, Cronin Brown. It, it, they were unusual, but you know, that's what we knew. We'd have a series of tastings that would run. The first time we did, we had too many. We had 18 beers. And the last six got rave reviews. <laughs> and, and there were stouts that people didn't normally drink anyway. <laughs> it's, so I thought, okay, that, that's a little bit over the top. Let, let's, next time we have beer down, let's hold it to eight instead of 18. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a little more sensible, I think. Now, I also understand you also had a history with beer. You had your first beer when you were 11 in Jamaica. Is that correct? Yes. In the Chinese system, we would like to balance what we eat and drink. So my dad would, on Sunday, would cook a huge meal for the family and extended family. And we'd have things like roast duck, roast pork, fried prawns. All these things are considered hot foods. Not necessarily in spice or temperature, but they're, they're high caloric. And then to balance that, you would get a couple of ounces of either hard cider or beer. And it turns out among my... The five of us, I was the only one that could tolerate it and liked it at 11. 
Okay, so in, starting up Highland, you you started brewing. It sounds like in the basement of a existing tap room or a restaurant. Is that right? Is that where you started well, it? It was being built at the same time. Barry's tap room took over one of the old historic buildings in Nashville, and they were on the working floor making pizza, and we were in the basement. And it was in '94, and they opened up a few months before we did. What made you think this could be a good business? Actually, it wasn't a matter of thinking it was a good business. I thought it was great. And that I could afford to have a little personal watering hole if it could just carry itself. That's all I was really looking at. I assumed that within a few years, there would be two or three breweries in town. And we'd be the local brewery. And But, you know, as long as it carried itself, I wasn't looking to any grow any big deal, just... Right. So you weren't envisioning that you were going to create some new oh, no. industry and it was going to take over and be the biggest brewer in North Carolina or Absolutely anything like not. that. It was just more of a kind of a personal hobby, the chance to yeah. maybe have a little bit of fun, try some things, meet some people, do something. Yeah. And we, we tossed a lot of beer in the beginning because we didn't think it was something it was drinkable, but we didn't want to charge people for it. So we, we dumped beer left and right. For a while until we figured it out. And then we got to the point where we thought, okay, this is sellable. We can be proud of it. That's what we've done from the very beginning. Did you just sell it in the tap room or did you distribute it to no, grocery I've stores? Never, we, we never sold retail till recently. We went straight with a distributor from day one. I, I, Tony, I had no desire to have calls on a Friday night for another damn keg. I said, let's give it to the wholesaler let him worry about it so the wholesalers appreciate here yes now that, that seems like that makes some sense so what were those early years like did the business grow well, it was a slow slog because even my good friend of mine who now loves our beer his comment was with a handball gang and he said his comment was oscar you're gonna go broke trying to sell this swill and now it's his favorite beer you know so it, it was a hard slog because people weren't familiar with it as you said it was the light beers, the imports, and now ales, a little bit heavier seemed like, a little more, too much potty. And But over time, we made a difference in the world. Oh, yeah. The U.S. really, the U.S. has really set the stage. It's been amazing to see the evolution. I, you know, I'm just thinking of Charlotte. I, I came to Charlotte in the late 1990s, and at the time, there were a few places brewing beer. There was a place called South End Brewery, which was, you might say, I mean, you would think right now you'd say a brewery in South End, Charlotte. Well, that's going to do great. It, I think went out of business in the early yeah. 2000s. I think there was a, a chain called Rock Bottom uptown that was brewing beer. But there was a period in the early 2000s where there were no local brewers. There was nobody brewing anything. So the fact that you started in 1994 and that my frame of reference is in the early 2000s, there wasn't really anything here. It seems like it didn't really take off initially. For you, right? I mean, when did it really start to take off? Basically, in the 2000s, early 2000s. It, it took us in 94 when we started, it took us eight years to break even. Eight. Now, my wife, my accountant, my attorney, they all said, you know, you gave it a good run, wrap it up. I said, no, I want to do it the right way. I want to do it well enough that we don't sell anything that people think is swell or it's incons inconsistent or, you know, whatever. So it took a while. 
we went through a phase in the late 90s when imports came roaring back because there are too many brewers who got into the business and were too inconsistent. And, and the, the public said, enough of that. And I think it was in 2002, we broke through and we started bottling beers instead of just kegs. And, and that, that helped to open up. And I think overall, we, we in the Southeast are the last section of the country to embrace craft beer. If you recall, it was the West Coast, Colorado, then the Northeast, and we were the last one. We, to this day, I think Florida is probably number three or four volume, and, and the craft down there is just beginning to come awake. So why did it take off the way that it did when it did? Were there, is it just a matter of changing consumer preferences? Were there some legal and regulatory changes? What, what led to the growth of the craft beer industry in North Carolina when it grew? A lot of it has to do with gradual acceptance on a broader scale. The, the homebrew clubs all around were always big for that. At the other end of the spectrum are the regular beer drinkers who discovered this and found that beer has an even broader perspective range of flavors than wine does. It can go all the way from the very lightest thing to the strongest Cabernet Sauvignon you want to find and everything in between. And they found, you know, so I think it was more a matter of time and a buildup of acceptance. And then finally, and another good thing is about people will really support a local brewery. They're not as willing to support a local winery. You know, I, I see that over and over. The wine is more, has more accolades the further away it comes from. Whereas people are willing to work with a local brewery. Why is that? It's hard to figure out, but I think in a way, beer is more of a, a common man, regular people. Wine tends to be on the snooty side. Yeah. I mean, I remember when craft beers were first coming online, some of the reputation was, oh, this is sort of a snooty kind of a thing, but certainly that's given way now. Now it's obviously pretty widespread acceptance. Oh, yeah. What's it been like for you to see the growth in Asheville? I mean, Asheville obviously is known as, as a brewing town now. I think it has the yeah. highest number of breweries per capita in the country, I think some of the reports say. But what's yeah. that been like for you to see? Well, it's 90,000 people. We have just under 40 brewing operations. That's crazy. Yeah. It's been, tell them you say that, we were, we were pleased. I was pleased to see how it was going. And I was shocked when I got a call from Sierra Nevada and then New Belgium. Kim Jordan called and Ken Grossman called and said, Oscar, I, we, we wanted to be a little out of your area, but you know, we, we, we're coming to town. And I said, sure, fine. You know, and then I went home and had a couple of martinis and I said, oh, my God, what are they doing here? And so we've survived. I mean, are, do you see them? Are they competitors? Are they friends? Are they both? How does that work up in Asheville? Well, I have high regard for them personally. They're, they're, they're solid, hardworking people. They, they care about their craft, and I applaud that. They've also brought Asheville seriously as a beer center now. From a competitive point of view, well, yeah, they, I mean, we, we have to fight for shelf space like everybody else. 
and, and you know, share a mind. I will have to admit that it really upped our game. We, you know, there's nothing like competition. Shake your booties and say, you better get your act together. Otherwise, you get run over. So we didn't want to be run over. So, Right. Now, I know you've been stepping back from Highland over the last few years. I think you've turned the company over to your daughter, uh, Leah Wong Ashburn. What's that been like working with your daughter? It's wonderful. In fact, her mother said, you're, you're, you're very lucky that she's accepted coming on board. But you just threw everything at her. I said, Lenny, I didn't throw it at her. So I'm just giving her all the leeway. And she checked in with me and things that she feels like she could use a little input on my perspective on it. I, I pretty much leave her be, make her decisions. I have a lot of confidence in her. And she's wrapped it up to another level that, you know, I'm an engineer. The sales and marketing was me that was it but she sees beyond that you know there's all kinds of social media and branding and all the other esoteric deals that no technical engineer in mind can't wrap around well it's nice to have a combination of both you'd like to have different people with different skills working on businesses right if you're from sort of the engineering business background you have someone you need someone who does the marketing and understands that you obviously need someone who you know, a brewmaster, someone who, who knows the beer yeah. side. Well, I mean, it takes a bunch of different skill sets and it sounds like you're a little bit complimentary there. It sure does. And, and she's done a wonderful job. I mean, the changing of the logo is another big deal. It, it was more like a Scotty, as we call him. And we, we call it Highland based on the Scots-Irish that settled area initially, way back. And it's, you know, we have our music or booze in other yeah, it's just music and booze, I guess, are the big part of it. That that Appalachian reflects the Skyland and the Highland and Scottish background. Got it. And I know the figures from the Brewers Association show that Highland Brewing is the largest brewer in North Carolina that is owned in North Carolina and brews beer in North Carolina. There are bigger brewing operations that are owned by some of these out-of-state conglomerates. But yeah. as far as, you know... North Carolina owned and produced beer. You guys have the, I think it was about 44,000 barrels, something like yeah. that. And 45,000 barrels in 2021, I think the latest figure show. Is that about right? Yeah. Now, largest in the Southeast that's family owned, that locally started and family owned and family operated. Do you see it staying that way? That's totally up to Leah. So that, you know, I'm, if You're just an employee now. I don't make a dollar or lose a dollar on it. I'm, I'm fine. We're comfortable. And we live in a retirement home. I come in every day and just I love hanging around with the staff. They're really neat. And it's her call, basically. And I think she has pride in what it is and what we do. And her husband, my son-in-law, is really loved the business. And they're striving and pushing it ahead. So I I would say she, as long as she's excited about the whole thing, she just would love to keep it. Let me just say that about two years after we moved into this location, we had uh, some people from the UK and we're talking about volumes and what they make and so forth. And they actually asked me, he said, well, what's your volume? And I, at the time it was something like 13, 14,000 barrels. And he said, oh my, 
that's about what we make, but we've been business 150 years. I thought, okay, um, you know, we're not, we're not ready to go shoot the moon and do all that big sell and sell and make a whole bunch of money. Hey, they we're part of the community and we want this to be, we're proud of the community, we want the community to be proud of us. So there we are. And what do you think of the industry in North Carolina? It's obviously gone beyond Asheville. Charlotte has a lot of breweries. You have a whole bunch in the Triangle, down the coast. It's really all over. What, what's it been like for you to see that evolution from when you were starting, nobody had really done this, and now now look at it? I'm very proud of the fact that I'm part of the We're not that early in the business. Now. I'm proud to be in an industry that made such a difference for the region, the state, and it's like for the whole country. It's it's really it's a whole industry that didn't exist just you know a couple of decades ago. Well, Oscar, it's been amazing to see the growth and you know an industry that so many people care about and you know drink beers from. And thank you for spending time with me today and telling me about your your history and and the history of the beer industry in North Carolina. Where do you see it going? Where do you see it evolving to? It's it, that's a tough call because. There, there are new drinks coming along all the time. You know, there's the hard tea, there's seltzers, there's every type of drink is a is a competitor to beer when you get right onto it. I would say um, we'll have to evolve, and I think it'll take a great combination of sales, moxie, branding, and, and following where the customer wants. I mean, we can sit here and say, we had a tough time for a while because we just stuck with British style ales for the longest time, longer than we should have. There was this West Coast IPAs and so forth coming out. I said, we got to give it a shot. Well, we, we were late to the game, but we learned our lesson that we really need to be right there in the front when you, when you see tastes shifting. Now, we're not eager to jump into this seltzer and RT and all that stuff either. Truth be told, it's, it's just stuff that's, it doesn't take that much talent to knock out stuff and just infuse fake, which we don't do. We hate that. Whatever we do, we have natural ingredients and we'll see, but it'd be a tough call. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure, Tony. And you're welcome to come up anytime and we can give you samples of all kinds of things and you can most welcome. I'll have to take you up on that. I appreciate it, Oscar. Uh, Especially when it gets too hot down in Charlotte. It gets hot. It gets very hot in Charlotte and a trip to the mountains right now sounds, sounds pretty good, but thanks a lot. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.